Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good and rewatch it. Uh, today we're rewatching Sunshine, Danny Boyle's 2007 sci fi thriller about a dying sun and an intrepid crew's mission to reignite it. I am joined, I, well, I am Danielle Riendo, and I am joined again by my brother in horror. That is how I will introduce you, unless you don't like that title, uh, Patrick Kleppick. Hello. No, I'm, I'm, I'm overjoyed to be back. Uh, it's, been, <laughs> it's been a while since I've, I've seen this movie, but. Uh... Yeah, it's a it's a delight. Yeah, I well, I agree. Spoiler spoiler alert: we will be spoiling uh, the whole movie. I mean, it's from two thousand seven, so hopefully, you know, you've you've it's had a chance. It's the fuck up. Yeah, it's like just if you're gonna watch it, if you're gonna rewatch it, know it's a rewatch podcast. And spoiler: we the spoilers. last third sucks. Yeah, I mean, honestly, yes. <laughs> Which is like the the thing about this movie, right? It 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 always feels like this is two thirds of a great movie, and then a little bit of a fallsy apartsies. Uh, at the end, but I don't think that's is that enough. A, is that a technical film? Do you yes. like teach that in your film uh, class? Falsy Apartsies. As my uh, uh, my film degree. Apartsies one hundred and one. First movie <laughs> watching is Sunshine. Exactly. Um, the moment the airlock explodes, Falsies Apartsies. We've got a Falsies Apartsies. And this and the plot that you've been following. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes that happens. You know, Falsies Apartsies happens. Uh, maybe we should name the podcast that, you know. Uh, Harvey's today. body, Falsies Apartsies, when it <laughs> is frozen and then knocks up against the ship. Yeah, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of where it, where it all goes. Uh, but we should, we should open this up uh, on, on a sort of the, I suppose the plot synopsis or the high level, right? Okay, so this is directed by Danny Boyle, Alex Garland, uh, you know, frequent contributor, not contributor, frequent collaborator. Uh, to Danny Boyle, wrote the movie, and they were coming off of 28 Days Later at this point, which was a huge success. It was a very successful zombie movie that was, you know, a little bit, I, I would call that not a falsies of partsies. I would call that a, a hugely successful movie that uh, did some revitalization, I suppose you could say, to the zombie genre, which never fully went away, but I think it did kind of reignite uh, interest yeah, in zombies that. just kind of go in a wave. Like, they, yeah, yeah, <laughs> they exactly. always return back from the dead. <laughs> Um, yeah, back. I remember liking that movie, but I don't remember, like, if you asked me to explain what happened, like, I could vaguely tell you, I was like, some bleak shots of London, yep. and... Zombies are fast. I remember... Yeah. They, yeah, that was the big thing from, like, a zombie mythology standpoint, was that they, they didn't uh, linger. Um, no shambles. And, yeah, I mean, you know, Danny Boyle's movies in general, like, are very good at, like, character humanization grounding, so I, I can vaguely say that's why I liked 28 Days Later, but I could not say that. Without, yeah. with like any real concrete feeling. Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll get to that one at some point. That feels like a very, you know, be good and rewatch it kind of movie. So I think, I think it'll happen someday. I, I can't commit to it, but I'll say I have a strong feeling about that. Um, and so, and so, okay, so 
We're in 2007 here, and uh, this movie specifically is about a, a sort of intrepid crew, like a best of humanity kind of crew. These are astronauts. These are people, you know, physicists, scientists, engineers who are on this spaceship uh, to drop a nuclear bomb into the sun because the sun is dying. We never really go into the uh, the science of sort of what happened to the sun or how nuclear fission would solve, you know, uh, the sun works on fusion uh, as I understand it. So it's never really explained, which is fine. It does not need to be explained, uh, but that's kind of the premise. We're on this uh, really, really high-tech, hyper-modern, beautiful, gorgeous spaceship, uh, which is already kind of a departure from a lot of this type of movie. This sort of, uh, it is, it does kind of fall within the derelict spaceship, you know, finding something fucked up out in space subgenre, you could call it. Uh, but instead of being, you know, the sort of space trucker type uh, in Alien or Event Horizon, these are like, you know, these are astronauts and scientists. These people are are sort of the the best of humanity. That's kind of the the general idea here. These are really, 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 uh, you know, your most just incredibly intelligent people doing their best to save humanity. And that's more and or less a, the Like premise. a distinct split between uh, sort of like white Americans yes. and like... Uh, uh, and, and, and an Asian cast, which yes. I guess like reading up on the film was like born out of research of like, I guess this movie's like set like theoretically 50 years in the future, like yeah, more or less. Yeah, 2057 or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like a near futurist that like seems like reasonably close to our time, but you know, with advancements that would come and like Boyle's research, I guess whatever experts they consulted, you know, it was like, well, where would the most advanced space engineering come from? Like, well, largely you know, America and China would make yeah. sense as like superpowers in Japan, um, Japan as well. Well, in terms of like the actual composition of the of the right. crew, it's it's right. sort of like China, Japan, East Asia, obviously, yeah, and also um, I believe Searle is uh, supposedly like a Middle Eastern dude, the doctor uh, who's also a oh right, yeah, sure, yeah. Uh, yeah so absolutely. fairly, I wouldn't call it like completely diverse, but like at least there is some diversity here in this movie, right? Or, but cool. there's also, there's like a logic to right, its right. cast, like whether or not that, you know, I'm not going to, I've not spoken to the same experts that Boyle claims to have spoken to in 2006 <laughs> or whatever, You're but right. like, yeah. there's a, like, I can see the through line to like where the cast like is born out. Like there yes. is a, there's a thinking behind like why these people are the people aboard yeah. the ship. And they're in, I think most of the movie, until we get to the last third, of course, most of the movie bears this kind of logic. Like, it does feel like a lot of the sort of framing decisions, cinematography decisions, plot decisions, they come from a real grounding. They come from a place of, it feels like they did actually consult experts in, in space travel and maybe not physics, but, you know, for space travel and for sort of the, the sociology of space travel and that sort of thing. Uh, what the crew might look like, what the crew might act like, it it feels, I want to say, like, as, as sort of a framing for this movie, it feels like, maybe not an art film, but like a prestige version, a very big, a very expensive, a very thoughtful version uh, of something like uh, a, a derelict spaceship movie, right? It's kind of a thriller in space. It's a sci-fi thriller in space that kind of becomes something of a horror movie in space, uh, kind of as it goes. Um, not just with the, in terms of, oh, people die and it's terrifying, but People die and it's terrifying and there is a, uh, maybe not supernatural, but pretty weird and maybe bordering on supernatural reason for what kind of happens uh, towards the end. And I suppose we should go into the plot a little bit. Uh, so we, we talked about the premise. They find uh, another spaceship. They find, so this is the Icarus 2, which again, the name of this ship, it is, poof. We wanted to talk about spot on names uh, or on the nose. <laughs> the Icarus is a whole thing. 
Uh, but the Icarus 2, this is the crew of the Icarus 2. They're basically the second shot. This is the last hope for humanity. And they go out uh, and they're coming towards the sun. And uh, there's a mistake. There's an accident. Trey, uh, the ship's navigator, uh, fucks up a tiny number. And that results in a whole lot of damage to the ship. It results in the uh, death of the captain, which is also a, a sort of a horrific but beautiful scene. Very, very interesting. And they find the Icarus 1. They find the ship and they don't know what had happened to it. So they go aboard the ship and we have our sort of derelict spaceship time aboard uh, the Icarus 2, uh, where they find evidence of Pinbacker, uh, the captain of the first ship, who has kind of gone, uh, I suppose he's gone mad. I, it's a little unclear exactly kind of what happened to Pinbacker. He is now like a, a, a very, uh, almost like a monster figure towards the end of the movie. Um, but I, I guess before we go into that, I did want to talk. I was say we just you just skipped over like the good part of Sorry. the movie. We gotta we gotta yeah. re we gotta rewind this podcast. Let's rewatch. I'm not, I'm not gonna spend an hour <laughs> talking about the bad Hellraiser uh, ripoff that yeah. occurs uh, towards the end because like the I think the first uh, you know two the first third is the strongest of yeah, the movie sure. like the lead up to the meeting of the the two um, Ikari the, the, the Ikari <laughs> um, is is like a really uh, strong, the strongest section of the movie. I think like it does a good job of setting up its cast. I think it does a good job of uh, making the sun something that we largely look at as a like a, a, not just warm in the sense that it warms things, but like a a comforting sort of like part of our existence. Like yeah. we tend to look to the sun for like it's kind of a, a grounding object um, in our lives. And I think this film successfully through cinematography and, and special effects and like little, the way it portrays the sun, it. I mean, it doesn't turn it into a villain, but it definitely uh, presents it as like a benevolent, indifferent god. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And there's certainly, you know, there's a through line of this movie of treating uh, the sun as sort of a, a deity or or a figure. Um, I, and and there's sort of ideas of religion that run through this movie that are very messy and don't don't really, or at least insofar as they work, I think they are they are better communicated through the way the film shows you the sun. Yeah. And the way the sun impacts the characters in this film instead of the way it is vocalized by, you know, characters in, in the last third um, that sort of like go off the deep end. But, you know, like the, the moment in the be in the beginning when um, I think it's the doctor who's in yeah, like the Cyril. observation yeah, window, yeah. you know, asks um, the Icarus, who is the name of the city or name of the, the ship and then also the AI that, that drives the ship, you know, how what percentage of the, the light am I seeing? And, you're, and I think the Icarus says it's seeing 2.1. Um, and then, so, well, how much can I see? And they said, well, you can turn it up safely to 3.1% for 30 <laughs> seconds. And like, just the way that, that is, that is shot, like the way it is portrayed, like you get a sense of like, just the, what we don't comprehend about the sun from our distance to it. Um, and obviously there's, you know, forms of exaggeration and, and, and the way the movie's deploying it, but I, it establishes the sun as a character, um, in a way that I found like very powerful. Um, and I think like when the movie continues to revisit that, especially under this understanding that if the sun is, is at least in our relationship to the sun, it basically is a God, yeah. like a like a, an indifferent God that sort of does whatever the, the sun is doing. And uh, it's it really doesn't care too much, like you know, <laughs> how it affects us on earth. Um, it's, I, I think the movie is very, very effective at portraying the sun as like this really interesting, very fearsome, scary sort of character that is kind of always, around the film even when the characters aren't directly dealing with it it always kind of reminds and reinsert reasserts and reinserts itself 
into the to the story. Absolutely. Yeah, that that really uh that's a really really good uh take on that and I completely agree. And I also think it uh it ties right into my idea of this movie, at least the first third of this movie, maybe the second third of this movie as science as supernatural in a lot of ways. Like we're dealing with you're saying the sun is a god, which it absolutely is in this framing and in literally becomes something that Searle I think worships at least at some level. Uh, we see him continually. So the, the movie begins with him seeing the sun, as you said. We see him continually have this really, really intense fascination with the sun. And uh, when Kaneda, the captain, dies, he is asking him on, you know, on the he's on the comms. Like instead of being like, you know, comforting in any way, he is the psychiatrist. He's like, "What do you see? What do you see? What do you see?" Uh, and and it's this incredible death scene that is both majestic and beautiful, as well as being really, really terrifying. I think. Uh, space itself is almost supernatural or space itself is almost like the uh, the terrifying element here. Uh, if this is a horror movie and we can kind of discuss whether or not it's a horror movie. And, you know, I, I kind of could see it either way. I could see a read on this as just like kind of a somewhat arty thriller uh, or like, no, this is a horror movie. There's like an intense fear of death and blood and maiming and, yeah, and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Like I, I've always uh, like found it funny to try and figure out the distinction because like, you know, places like iTunes and Amazon distinguish between right horror and thriller. And I I think that that's um, in some ways a meaningless distinction because the the, the difference between the two is, is uh, often hard to discern. I think what Usually, like, the practical way of explaining it is, like, there are a lot of people that don't like... If you said, do you like horror films? They would say no. Right. But they've probably seen a lot of thrillers that could be categorized as horror. And thriller is often just, like, it's just, like, horror movies for normal people. Right? I mean, yes, <laughs> like, absolutely. Right, because, like, yeah. there's often less of an emphasis on, you know, like, specifically, there's usually less of an emphasis on gore. There's uh, less an emphasis on uh, celebratory violence. Yeah. Um, uh, or celebrating violence, um, and, and so even though this movie encroaches on that territory, um, you know, I think there are movies that um, are less indulgent in certain things that people, when they think of horror, um, thriller is just sort of like the the PG thirteen <laughs> yeah. uh, version of that. Even if the movies are often are like that's like sort of the analogy I've often said in my head is. You can ask people movies they love, and it's like, well, actually, you do love horror films. It's just we call them thrillers because then you don't think it's Friday the 13th right. or, or whatever. Um, <laughs> or a ghost story. Uh, or at least yeah. the, go the, the goal is not to scare you in the ways that horror films cheaply tend yeah. to do, right? Like Sunshine isn't full of jump scares. I mean, there are moments that are tense and scary and loud noises, but horror films tend to deploy like a specific bag of tricks that they're pulling yeah. out of. And thrillers tend to use those a little more judiciously because it's they're not overly reliant on a set of tropes because often horror fans... I like the, you know, I like some yeah. of the tropes. Some of the tropes, like when I watch a found footage film, is like, hell yeah, <laughs> jump out of that closet and scare the shit out of me. Like that's, I'm here for a very specific reason. I think thriller is a little more ambiguous where it kind of pulls out of different buckets. Yeah. And I think thrillers also tend to be a little more character focused by by their nature. It's like when you're not relying on the, the bag of tropes or the bag of tricks that horrors fans tend to find themselves enjoying, myself included, they, you have to replace it with something else, and I, I don't think it's a surprise that it ends up, unfor you know, unfortunately for horror fans, replaces it with character because the best horror films are often better because of character, but they are left behind because they rely on, on other sure. things. So yeah. I think that's that that's kind of where I sort of fall on on that distinction. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's got horror elements, but yeah, thriller is probably 
Um, like you could show this to people that don't want to watch. A whole yeah, movie, I, I think I that's guess. that's very fair. I, I do like that test of like, all right, do normal people like this? There's also the element of supernatural, right? Which horror uh, tends to employ. Not always. Not every horror movie is fully sort of supernatural. Not necessarily a monster. It might be a serial killer, that kind of thing. But they do tend to at least flirt with the supernatural in certain ways. And I do think this movie flirts with the supernatural, even if it is just sort of presenting natural phenomena as supernatural in some ways, uh, especially mm -hmm. like in this extreme, right? If you actually were to go up to the sun, yes, it would be horrifying. <laughs> like, yes, it would be a horrifying thing to encounter. This thing can kill you in much faster than you could ever realize you'd be dead, right? Uh, it is such an extreme phenomenon that we're not built for. Human beings are not built to be in space in general. So I think there are a lot of sort of horrific elements uh, of sci-fi a lot of the time. Human, human beings are just not built to be in general. So <laughs> space just like amplifies exactly, that. Right? I, mean, I have a note here. It says, um, mm -mm. bodies suck, <laughs> deeply fragile. Let's get rid of yes. them. Which, sure, heightened by what occurs in sunshine, but also just, come in on. General. Like, you just That's true on Earth. That's true right that's now. True. Like, it's... Someone's about to go get hernia surgery in two weeks. Like, come on. Like, bad. Like, this sucks. We both just had a Weird birthday. Weird muscle tear. Yeah, like, we both just had a birthday. We're both in, like, you know, barreling in the mid-30s. And it's like, oh, God, really? Is this? 34, time for your abdominal muscles to just weirdly separate. Oh. What's that? What's? Is that my intestine? What's that, buddy? Just push it back. <laughs> just push it back in. Joffrey, which is the, what, it's, what I've named my. Joffrey. in my guts that. Pokes out of my. I mean, that's a great. That's a, hold on, we don't need. To, that's a great name yeah, for an I figure, annoying need, yeah. abdominal phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Just go. Shoot. Shut up, Joffrey. Go back in there, Joffrey. <laughs> Get out of here. I really like that. Anyway. I really like that. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of elements of this movie uh, that sort of present horrifying phenomena and what reasonable people would do in uh, the horrifying phenomena, right? Like, so one of the biggest things that happens in this movie, and it's it's really it really bothers me on every level, is during the accident, uh, when Trey, the navigator, kind of fucked up some numbers a little bit, uh, and the the sort of the hydroponics bay is completely destroyed in a, in a horrifying fire. Uh, and the botanist, uh, her name is, is Michelle Hiao, uh, who's playing her, but I want to get her actually. It's like Curzon, I think, is her name. There's a lot of characters, and they don't say their names yeah, very true. often. So I basically just yeah. like punted on trying to remember the who botanist. Yes. was named. <laughs> the botanist. Yeah, Corazon. Uh, yeah, I just pulled it up. Uh, she really kind of freaks out. Of course, th these are, this is her work. This is her life, is keeping everybody alive, keeping everybody breathing and eating and all of these other things through the use of these plants. Uh, and through this accident, they realize they don't have enough oxygen for everyone. And they kind of have to figure out, like, okay, somebody needs to die because if they don't die... All of us will die, and we need to get this bomb to the sun so everybody on Earth will live. And it kind of presents an argument between, you know, uh, there are several times throughout the movie where they have to make these moral decisions that almost feel very, uh, not video gamey uh, in a way, but it's like the level of uh, drama, the level of sort of heightened morality that you would get yeah, in a game. This is very much the uh, save the little sisters or harvest them uh, you know, kind of thing. Like, do we try to see what's happening on that other ship, and then we get another bomb that we could potentially use? Or do we ignore it because our mission is to go for it? And then on this level, uh, do we kill somebody on this ship so that everybody can live long enough to get this bomb into the sun? It's really, really kind of meaty stuff. 
And it feels presented in a very grounded way. Like it actually does feel like these people are intelligent people. These are decent human beings. They're not assholes. They're not, you know, uh, <laughs> like terrible people. They're just really trying to deal with an impossible wild situation, which again, I really appreciated that uh, in the characters. Yeah, my, my favorite scene in probably the whole movie is, so then what you're, the scene you're alluding to where uh, uh, they, basically they, they make a calculation to when they get, get a ping from the Icarus One, um, it, which disappeared off the map seven years ago. They have no idea what happened because as they approach the sun, they approach something called the dead yeah. zone where they can no longer communicate um, back with Earth. Um, and so the Icarus One went into the dead zone, disappeared, and they assumed, you know, any number of things could have gone wrong, but there was no way for them to actually assess what occurred to the Icarus One. And so as the Icarus Two heads toward a similar location as the Icarus One to deploy um, the fusion bomb or whatever, um, they get a signal and they make the decision, or at least the physicist, uh, um, uh, Cillian Murphy's character, is asked to like, hey, make a calculation on whether we should could go there or not. And, you know, there, there's one, there's a good scene where he is told, basically you're asking me to choose a coin flip <laughs> and I don't know if we should do this or not. But they they settle on the idea that, yeah, two shots are better than one. And so they decide to go to the Icarus one um, to try and salvage some stuff. But so Trey, um, who I guess is their navigator yeah. um, uh, or, or, you know, whatever the, the more specialized name for that, but that's essentially what he's doing. He, um, you know, runs the calculations on trajectory and blah, blah, blah. Um, and has to input this stuff manually, like, because part of the relationship on the ship is that, uh, the Icarus, the AI is more or less running things, but there are times when the humans can sort of intercede to have it do something that is against technically the mission directive. Um, and he does that, but then doesn't adjust the shields. And so they have these enormous heat shields on the outside that are allowing them to get closer and closer to the sun. And, there's this, uh, I think, incredible, incredible moment where they're trying to figure out, like, what one happened. Because the ship gets rocked and, like, a bunch of the sensors get fried. They're lucky that, like, a huge hole didn't get punctured in the ship and just kill everyone instantly. Um, and he doesn't know what goes wrong. They realize the heat shields um, weren't adjusted. And then he has this moment where he has just a, a meltdown. Yeah. Where he is, he, um, is screaming and then starts yelling, like, I fucked up, I fucked up, I fucked up. And you have this person who... Uh, I think the, the the performance is really well done because it helps convey and is like the stronger parts of the movie where it's like you watch people who are, you know, superhuman relative to right. us, right? In terms of their intelligence and their um their capab their intellectual capabilities, um, make a mistake. And even explains why the mistake happened. He was focused on X, Y, and Z. Didn't he was looking realize, at all these different uh, numbers instead of yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and like the and the movie tries to also grapple with the consequences of that action, right? Like, what would that do to a person where it's uh, they managed to avoid the worst possible scenario, which is that they've doomed all of humanity? That would be something quite different. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, when the captain dies, uh, it's like he is direct. That was his fault. It, it direct was it, it is uh, you understand why the mistake was made. And yet it is 100 percent his fault yeah. that that occurred. Um, and they actually end up putting him into a, uh, self-imposed, uh, coma because he's deemed a suicide right. risk and can't, you know, is just thought to not be able to grapple with the full ramifications of, uh, what happened because like, how could anyone human bear that in a, in an already high stress situation? It's so, like, those are the moments like when they're dealing with like these people on a very 
the, the human level um, and start to deconstruct like psychologically what would happen over the long, not, not only just a long journey that we only get a hint of when uh, Cillian Murphy's character sends his final yes. message and he says like, oh, I'll see you in a couple of years, implying they've already been on this journey for just to get here for a couple of years and that the journey back had they been able to pull that off, would have been, you know, it sounds like maybe they're going to be gone for 10 years or something wild like that. Um, that's the stuff that I, I found to be, upon a rewatch, like to be most effective and only makes, you know, the the back half of the movie all the more frustrating when it just sort of like completely loses the yeah. plot on uh, both its plot and then also the things that were its strength, where like its characters and like, you know, I think what, what makes the, the last third so frustrating even before yeah. we get there and exactly what happens is uh this was already tense enough yes. like there was already enough <laughs> here um like the movie constantly found really um understandable uh, tension in the mission they were already doing and the things that could go wrong along the way so like the idea of like going to Icarus 1 and then something like the shield's getting fucked up. Like, yeah, that sucks. Like that was a lot for, that's enough. Like that, you can build a movie around moments uh, like that. And I think it worked because, uh, you know, it was understandable mistakes as opposed to an external yes. force. And often these movies have an external force. Event Horizon, right? Like, I mean, Event <laughs> yes. Horizon is, it's built around that on yeah. purpose. Like that is the point of the movie. Um, whereas Sunshine didn't need that. Sunshine actually could have build, been built around the tension of people in space for years with the burden of humanity on their back, and that would naturally lead to people making mistakes that is both their fault, but also, like, of course shit was going yeah. to happen. Yeah, I completely agree. Space could have been the bad guy, you know, to, like, really make it very, very, like, to reduce that to an incredibly uh, tiny point there. Like, space and survival are scary enough. You did not need uh, necessarily a sun monster. Uh, we're going to take a super quick break, but I do want to go back on some of that about psychology as soon as we're back. But please enjoy this uh, sunshine ad. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, so I really, uh, I really agree with that point, and I wanted to touch back on sort of the way psychology is treated throughout this movie uh, because it's so, so, so important, and I think it's pulled off so, so, so well again until the end, which we will, uh, of course, talk about quite a bit more. Uh, but the way that, uh, especially in the beginning of the movie, uh, Mace played by Chris Evans and uh, it's Kappa. Uh, played by Cillian Murphy. I just want to point out, by God, Chris Evans in this movie had did not. What, Chris <laughs> Evans forever. I'm sorry, you just are Captain America. You did not exist in films before you became Captain America. I know. I he does. He's so scrawny in this he's movie. He's tiny. Like, bulked, built, bulked up. Uh, Chris Evans is Chris Evans in right. my head, and so uh, watching him in this scruffy with long hair in this movie was just like. 
wait, what? Who is Who's this? in this movie? <laughs> that said, like, in that sequence where he has to decide, like, who lives and dies, like, he just becomes, like, scientist, Chris, like, uh, yep. Captain America. Like, he just becomes <laughs> Captain America, like, halfway through this film. It is, it is absolutely lovely. And I actually, I went into this, I just put it on, uh, I was watching it with a friend, and, like, truly... For most of the movie, I didn't even realize it was him because of this. Right. Because he's like so, he, you know, small uh, and he's he's Mr. Engineer. He's Mr. A, B, and C. Like he doesn't feel like, oh, I'm Mr. Hero. You know, he's more like, I don't care wow. if we all die. Whatever. If we all die, I don't give a shit. We need to save humanity. Like it's very like a different type of heroic, I suppose. You could kind of make mm-hmm. that connotation. But like very different from like Mr. Swoops in and wants to save everything with his own hand. He's more like, no, I'm pragmatic to a fault. Uh, <laughs> which... He does have a heroic uh, end, I think. Uh, he does actually become quite a hero, but a different type of hero. But yeah, I did not re- I was like, man, he looks like Diet Captain America. That's what I kept saying. He was Diet Captain America, and then, yeah, the, the, the transformation happens. Uh, but there's a really wonderful uh, sense of respecting psychology, at least in the beginning of this movie. The doctor is himself a psychiatrist, so he's both, like, the ship's doctor and also... He does like psychiatric evaluations on the crew when they're starting to go, uh, you know, where their nerves are starting to get a little frayed when they're uh, very upset about getting to the to the. Um, sorry, what is it called again? Where you can't communicate, like the dark zone or whatever they the call dead it. zone. The dead zone. Sorry, yeah. Uh, also, the name of that's also the name of a Stephen, Stephen King, King novel. Of right? course, of course, uh, our our friend, your friend and mine, Stephen King. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. You know, I want to live in. The, I want to live in the reality where Stephen King is your friend and mine. I, I love it. Let's just present, pretend that he, that we're friends. <laughs> My buddy, Mr. King, Steve. You know. Uh, anyway, there is like a really wonderful like respect for the social sciences, even though this is a movie about like the hard sciences, you know, these are physicists and engineers and, you know, uh, botanists. Like these are people who have 10 chemistry degrees, right. And four physics degrees and all this kind of stuff. But there's like actually a respect for, uh, crew dynamics. There is a respect for, uh, the kinds of things that will happen to people when they live in a tin can for however many years. Uh, and there's a really lovely kind of moment where, uh, so Mace uh, gets in a fight with Kappa because Kappa took too long on his message. So Mace won't be able to uh, send his last message. They get in a fight. Oh, it's not even a fight. It's more of an attack. Uh, and then uh, there's an evaluation with Searle, uh, and he prescribes the Earth Room, uh, <laughs> which is also really also, cool. Also, before that, there is a great <laughs> sequence where uh, I don't know how to pronounce the actress Rose Byrne. Oh, yeah, Rose, Rose Byrne. Byrne. I think it's Rose Byrne. Yeah, I think, it's Rose I think Byrne. so. Yeah. Well, I now just think of it as a comedic actress because she has, in her last like five years, has gotten involved in a lot of really. She's she a very, has. very good comedic actress. Yes, very she funny. Is. Um, but she's the one that sort of reports, uh, like she you know observes that the fight is happening, and then yep. I wrote down the line <laughs> uh, she passes on to the captain. Uh, we have an excess of manliness breaking out in the comm sector. Was just a really so good, really funny line. Yeah, it's so 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 good. Uh, and then there's a very hilarious, very manly apology scene uh, between the two of them. No, I'm apologizing. No, I'm apologizing. No, I'm apologizing. No, I'm apologizing. It's really funny. It's really like heartwarming and funny. And I think it goes a long way in sort of selling these characters and the fact that like. These are decent human beings. Uh, they're nice people. They're both very, very intelligent, but they're also like decent human beings uh, who are just doing their best and uh, in a pretty wild situation, uh, which I really appreciated. And then I think uh, in terms of mental illness, we go way off a deep end. Uh, and do you, do you, all right, let, here, let's do this. Let's uh, let's talk about the mental illness 
portion and sort of how things go way off the rails, I think, in this movie. And then I want to talk about favorite shots because this movie is so freaking beautiful. But I do want to end on that positive. So let's talk about the bad part. Let's talk about how Sunshine uh, falls off the rails, I think, uh, in a way that I can see the intentions. This is one of those where I absolutely saw the intention, I think, of the filmmakers, which was to say... Um, I think very similar, a very similar point to Interstellar, which would be years later. Uh, the sort of, here is the best of humanity, and they have gone sour because, it, you know, you take everything with you out into outer space, which is, of course, sort of the thesis of Interstellar, especially with Matt Damon's character in that movie where he was supposed to be the best of the best, you know, the, the best of us, the best astronaut who's going to go out and help save humanity. And, of course, he ends up being, like, a total uh, selfish asshole, right? I have not wa- <laughs> I d- supremely disliked uh interstellar but that is a movie i'm there's a lot of things i like about it but i the plot just very fair yeah that said i wonder now with uh 300 dad feelings i bet (laughs) that movie would play a little differently like i would be able to successfully ignore the horrible machinations (laughs) of the plot at the end for how they wrap that thing around and i would just be unable like dad Patrick would take over and just sob through the plot and just be like, whoops, well, this part doesn't matter because I'm just <laughs> having dad feelings right now. We're in a library. And it doesn't matter. Dad feelings. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That, that is also a movie I like things about it, but it's a mess in my mind. A, be- a beautiful sure. film. Beautiful, beautiful film. mess. Like a Amazing gorgeous soundtrack. Mess. I listen to it uh, <sighs> probably once a week. Some of the shots. Um, really, really. Anyway, yeah. <sighs> cool robot on that water world. Yes, I, I the remember. robot was good. The, it had a good robot. That's true. It had two good robots, or, or part of it, anyway. Uh, but, but yeah, like, so uh, I think that was the intention here. I think the intention here was about uh, to supposedly saying things about what happens to even the best of humans in the most extreme, you know, sort of situation. So uh, what happens in the movie, uh, if I'm reading the text correctly, Pinbacker, who is the captain of the first ship, went uh, completely mad. He he believed, uh, he, he really kind of saw the sun as God in a certain way or, or sort of uh, associated well, them together. He outright says he was communicating, communicating with, with God. God over the last seven years. It's like yeah. part of an arc for several different characters where it's like, um, you know, the doctor believes he sees something when he increases the, um, the ability to see the sun at 3.1%. Yeah. Which then leads him to ask the captain, as the captain is dying and staring directly in the sunlight, do, do you see, see anything? Yeah. Um, which of uh, which of I, th- I believe comes. I don't know if that comes before or after they see like the transmission from Pinbacker or not. But then that you know that leads into you know the 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 the, the movie's like quote unquote villain. Yeah. Um, being someone who like fully believes they have seen. Something so like there's like a, a sort of like a, a threat underneath that like maybe there is like something that you see in like the pure fury and, and, and you know uh, uh, unbridled energy of the sun you know I don't the movie doesn't come down one way or the sure. other um, on that or maybe it does come down on the side they're like ah like there's nothing there you're just looking for something that that isn't there it's just a <laughs> giant indifferent you brought it with you you know br- interstellar thing of style. mass right like yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you are bringing your humanity to something that does not care about you which is space and the consequences of space yeah. and planets and stars. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's interesting how there are three different characters yes. that kind of, and the captain never answers, right? Like importantly, the captain never says whether he sees anything because he's probably like, yo man, I'm dying. Like I don't see shit in this. <laughs> it's like, this is my fucking death. Fucking son. Like I'm just about, 
my skin's about to melt, so right. <laughs> let me enjoy this pretty view, okay? Exactly. Exactly, and that's a really wonderful scene. Uh, really, really intense and really weird. That's what I liked about it so much. This felt weird in a way that felt genuinely appropriate. Like, what an extreme way to die. He's probably not even going to feel pain. He's going to be dead so quickly, he won't even feel anything, but he can see something first, which is, like, wild and interesting and, and existential uh, on some level. Uh, but yeah, Pinbacker believes he is sort of acting through God uh, in a lot of ways, and he intentionally uh, sabotaged his ship. He he ended up, uh, you know, being the reason his crew died, the reason everybody died, the reason uh, that he wants humanity to die. He thinks very clearly that, uh, you know, God has said you're done. You know, the sun is the sun's going out, and you're done. Humanity had its chance, uh, and then he attempts to sabotage the Icarus too. Uh, and he almost gets there. But uh, of course we have a couple of heroic actions uh, from our crew, our intrepid crew. And I think they're successful in the end. It's a little bit uh, played to be ambiguous, but I believe the sort of the final shots, uh, very poetic sort of uh, Kappa's final message to his family. And there's a sort of like shot of the, the Sydney opera house and the sun is a little brighter that day. And it's like, okay, I think, I think they made it. It's kind of the, a hopeful ending. However, the pinbacker stuff reads to me as being so heavy-handed uh, in a movie that is not necessarily heavy-handed until that point. Uh, I, I think they attack things, not attack things, but they treat things with a sort of subtlety. Uh, they're talking about mental illness. They're talking about the extremes of experience. They're talking about the extremes that uh, you know, a, a really well-adjusted, really intelligent, really capable person can go through and still kind of make it through without having to do this really wild, uh, you know, uh, sun monster slash religious zealot kind of thing happening. I, I, well, they don't, they, <laughs> like, the one, it's shot extremely strangely. Yes. Like, you never get a clear shot of the body, except you get, like, a little bit of it towards the end, and they, like, rip off, like, but... a part of his skin yeah. as, as they're hurtling towards the sun. Um, but, like, every time the character appears on the screen, like, the there's a lot of distortion it's like um, flares or something. Almost. It's just odd. It's like it's really strange. Like I don't yeah. stylistically, I I don't know what the intention was because it just makes it confusing to like frame in your mind like what happened to this person. What are they? If I'm supposed to be scared, then like let me see the burnt body. The like scary and, thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's also missing like. You have to make a lot of inferences about, like, why did this person do what they do? And in a movie in which character motivations are articulated, characters explain their reasoning, you may not agree with what they're doing, but everyone is motivated by very uh, articulated reasons. Like, even uh, Harvey, you know, the douchebag, yeah. who becomes the second, uh, he becomes in command after the, the, the captain dies, and there's a sequence in which uh, they're trying to get back to the main ship after the airlock has been blown, uh, that he asserts that he's the one that needs to take the one uh, spacesuit, um, even though the physicist, played by Cillian Murphy, is the one that should go back, because, yo, he knows how to blow up that bomb <laughs> to save humanity. Point. yeah. And, like, there's this, you know, there's that a really great moment where, like, he says, like, this is a direct order, he's shaking, he's sweating, he clearly is just afraid to die, yeah. and he's trying to use his, assert his authority and his power to... To do that, even though they even manages to spit out the bullshit line of uh, like I will do everything in my power to come back when like everyone knows like that's not true. You're like done, you can't, buddy. <laughs> once once they've depressurized, like it that's it. Um, but like it's a very human moment and a very human uh, uh, 
thing to do to try and, you know, maybe a shitty, but like it is not uh, wild to for a human to like exert its power over someone in order to like for self-preservation. Yeah. So that's like a long-winded way of saying like this movie is missing like an exposition moment yes. where uh, uh, pinback, Pinbacker, right? Is yeah. That, is that it? The he gets like to locked Star. in a room. Lo yeah. Like there's always these moments in a, when you're trying to like, you get the villain's motivations, right? And what this movie needed was like, oh, he gets locked in an observation room where the, a character can talk to him. And he has that villain moment where he explains, <laughs> this is how I arrived at this. And there's the inevitable flashback where you see things happening yep. on the ship. And it fills in them, and then it, he escapes, and then, you know, does what he's going to do. But, like, this movie, even if it was going to go this route, which I don't think it needed to, um, or if it was going to happen, it should have been, like, wildly condensed to be just, like, a thing as opposed to the thing. Yes. But if it was going to go this route and introduce this character, I, I it needed to have a moment where the character actually explains why they did what they did. And have the characters that are left or a character respond to that with the same rational articulation that has informed the characters yes. prior to that, because the movie just lacks that. And instead you just get a monster who, you know, Jason <laughs> Voorhees his way around the <laughs> ship in a way that's just like really frustrating. And it undercuts all the earned tension yes. from like, if you're not going to do it where it's completely out of left field, where it is aliens, where it is something like that. If you're just going to make a human that, you know, I don't know. It's just, yeah, it was just really frustrating because it, it it literally undermines everything that is so successful about what be comes before it. Um, yeah. For just cheap, you know, like when, uh, you know, when, when the, uh, when Michelle Yeoh is, Michelle Yeoh is the actress. Yeah. Uh, yeah. like, you know, she finds like a little piece of greenery, like, uh, growing and then ah, she gets stabbed in the stomach right. by a, a blade or whatever it is. Yeah. It's like, okay. Um, it yeah, just that doesn't, was it just, corny. none of it worked for me. I didn't yeah. find it scary. Like it doesn't work as a horror film. Right. It doesn't work on a character level. It doesn't reveal anything about the character that's committing these actions, nor upon reflection, reveal anything about the characters that we've grown to, if not care for, at least understand in the first two thirds. And so that just makes it deeply frustrating because you see a movie that could have been a lot stronger, um, just like undermining itself at every turn. Yeah, I, completely with you. I, and I've always sort of wondered why this decision, and this is my first time actually watching the whole thing. I'd seen like little tiny bits and pieces at points, but never really watched, kind of sat down and watched the whole thing. And that whole time I was just like, why did they do, was this like a studio pressure thing? Like, oh, you have a big sci-fi, you know, big budget sci-fi space movie. Gotta have an alien, gotta have some death, gotta have some... some I don't think so. Like, reading yeah. the production of the movie, uh, like, Danny Boyle has always been a director that tries to call his own shots, and coming off of 28 Days Later, it sounds like, you know, reading about, like, this movie was three years in production. There was a mm. year that him and Alex Garland... Like, Alex Garland wrote a script, came to Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle likes to be involved in his scripts, sure. and so he doesn't just shoot the stuff that's handed to him. Um, and they worked for a year on the script... They worked for a year on pre-production to understand like how you would shoot like a sci-fi film. And then they spent three months shooting it and then a year on editing and wow. special effects yeah. and, and all that stuff. So like it was a wet, like the, the, the misfires of this film seem to be very, very calculated <laughs> misfires. Sure. And so like if that's, if it's, if that's going to happen, at least it came from a vision and the vision was just didn't work. 
Yeah. Um, but I don't think this is a case where like a studio came in and said, if you're going to make a space film, we need the gory villain at the end. We um, need a burned sun monster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it was interesting because like reading about the film, like one of the concerns the studio had, uh, like originally Fox uh, proper, like 20th Century Fox was going to sign off on it, but then they sent it to like their indie film mm. division. Um, and the reason Fox was nervous about the movie was because they'd already signed off on a big budget sci-fi movies, uh, Solaris with George sure. Clooney yeah. from a couple of years prior, which I've not seen, but heard was like interesting, uh, if not particularly good. It is. Uh, it's, it's, it's a movie I've wanted to go back and, and watch. I know it's also a remake. I mean, like the Tarkovsky 70s? movie, yeah, seventies Tarkovsky movie, which is my favorite Tarkovsky movie, and I'm I'm not his biggest fan, but I think that one is incredible. Yeah. So anyway. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, like, it sounds like they made they. They built a bed that they wanted to lie in. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> I understand, I understand, yeah. And I, Which and is I, frustrating in a different way. It is. I mean, it super is. It super, super is. And I and I do know a little bit about, uh, they certainly did their homework uh, with the cast, doing research, and also I, I read a tiny, tiny bit about production in terms of, like, the crew did space training together. They they lived together for a, a not the crew, sorry, the, the actual cast who were the crew in the movie, right, actually lived together for a certain amount of time, did, like, space adult space camp kind of stuff like to actually kind of you know work through some of what those relationships would look like and that's part of I, I think that's reflected in the performances that you know they really do feel like people who have lived together for a long time and are sick of each other's shit but also know how to kind of deal with each other and that comes through nicely i i do think uh that was well, and also it was interesting that um apparently there was a romantic subplot between huh. uh two of the characters um, I don't know which I think Cillian Murphy and Rose Bryan that makes sense because they do have um, a connection certainly in the movie yeah, yeah. Um, and it, they I don't think they even shot it I think it was ripped out of the script and like sure. uh, Danny Boyle's like explanation for it was like like okay maybe people might fuck in space because they would be nervous and like that's an understandable way to yeah. like relieve some tension but he was like, seem these like super smart people would probably just be focused on the mention. Like there wouldn't be time for uh, other ranges of emotions, or at least that's how we chose to interpret sure. like the psychological toll several years in. Maybe they fucked earlier, and like, hey, it's boring. It's boring just now. Friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, they went and to also, the Earth room uh, a couple times. You know, that's fine. <laughs> you know, one of the things that sci-fi films, uh, I mean, just movies tend to do this is like, especially when you're casting inherently uh stereotypical like quote unquote pretty people sure, sure. is that even in situations where they probably wouldn't be spending a lot of time focusing on their looks the movies still present them as like the height of the the power of of sex and and beauty sure um and you have a lot of people in this cast that are like traditionally uh, attractive people pretty hot I mean, chris yeah. evans chris evans is a hottie like it's rose bryant is a hottie it's like true. this is these are just facts um but apparently Specifically, he made the whole cast not wear makeup. I mean, I guess that's more applicable to, you know, the women than the men sure. in this case. But, like, there was a – I think it was also part of, like, how they figured out, like, Chris Evans's, you know, kind of sloppy. Like, sure. there was a deliberate yeah. attempt to, like, reflect what would people look like several years into, like, a dedicated space mission to save humanity. It probably wouldn't focus a whole lot on, like, making sure your eyebrows look great. Or right. Or that you've had a haircut recently or yeah. that you're wearing a low-cut top. And so – it's one of those things I think is uh, helps strengthen the early parts of the film because it's not communicated directly, but it's communicated sort of subconsciously yeah. through the directing decisions of like, ah, to like hopefully better reflect how normal people would 
Even if these are these, these are not normal people. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 Gen- you know, this is how genius but, is. What I, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or just like how people like put in an extraordinary situation over the course of years might reasonably react to that situation. They would just that wouldn't be on their priority uh, list probably yeah. anymore. Yeah. So I just thought that was like an interesting sort of factoid that like you don't necessarily see because in ho- it's Hollywood has to mean that they all look you know 100%. traditionally attractive. Um, yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Uh, I like that a lot. Very, very interesting. And that does tie in a little bit with what I think is the strongest uh, part of the movie, which is its cinematography. There are shots in this movie that are just like I could just put them on and just, like in slow motion and just sort of bask in it a little bit. And I think uh, especially in terms of like both wonderment and horror, like there's a little bit of both in some of these scenes. So I, do, I wanted to call out like a couple of my favorite sort of sequences visually. Uh, one of them being, of course, uh, the the sort of Mercury scene. Uh, it's like a really happy moment in the movie where, uh, you know, Captain Canada is like, you know, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't need an introduction. He kind of just sort of, uh, everybody's on the observation deck and he just sort of gestures toward Mercury and it's this sort of just beautiful moment of, of sort of light and shadow and this, this gorgeous, gorgeous play of it, which is really kind of them appreciating. So much of this movie is very understandably being terrified of the sun's power and what it can do to you, uh, especially this close to it. Uh, but this is just a moment of like, just appreciating the beauty, just saying we are in this wild situation. Uh, this is incredibly beautiful. No other humans get to see this, right? And here we are, let's like appreciate this and look at it and sort of bask in it, uh, which I thought was so, so, so beautiful. And of course, we've already talked about the scene of Kaneda's death and what he sees, uh, you know, the whole thing about what he sees and mm-hmm. his death. Also incredible. Again, the the sort of the use of light and shadow in this movie is just unreal. Just so, so, so beautiful uh, and scary and weird. Like there's a weirdness and a tension in a lot of these shots just visually uh, that I find really, really incredible. Uh, And then one other thing I wanted to kind of uh, mention, uh, the sort of just how bright green the uh, the sort of uh, hydroponics bay is, just Mm -hmm. how beautiful and green and like, I, they must have done something in post-processing or, or in the lens itself to just make it pop so much. But I remember watching this movie and just sitting there and being like, oh, I just want to I just want to touch these plants. Like they, they just seem to be popping from the screen in a really, really awesome and beautiful way. And this movie does it just sells both weirdness and majesty uh, and terror intentions so, so, so well uh, visually. I don't know if you had any sort of favorite shots or favorite like so visual I, yeah, I'm elements. trying to go through my notes. There are two two other things that I. Uh... Small thing uh, is yeah. that uh, uh, this movie doesn't do a whole lot of, oh, it's the future. We're going to show you little future, <laughs> how tech works. Sure. Like, it's just not interested in that. But, like, one of the rare cases of that is when they're out fixing the solar panels uh, or the heat panels on the side of the ship. They have these portable lights that they put up. Like, yep. they're basically, like, street <laughs> lamps that, like, they put. It's just, it's just, I don't have much to say about it except, like, I saw them. was just, like. That's just unbelievably cute and cool. It, it and like, is, yeah. That seems neat. Um, <laughs> I want one. And like, I there's nothing deep about it. I just thought like for a movie that largely uh, uh, is not focused on like a bunch of designers coming up with like weird ways of how the future would work, which is fine. I love that stuff. Sure, um, yeah. It's like a rare moment where the movie has uh, something like that because it's yeah. largely not even focused on, on that stuff. Totally. Um, and then the uh, other thing was that, uh, so I've been endlessly frustrated that Spotify took the soundtrack to this film off of its listings. I don't know when that happened, but it was this, um, the movie sort of like kind of came and went for me when I saw it originally. I believe I watched it because I 
sort of came to know Danny Boyle like through sure. 28 Days Later and then was like, oh, I, I got to oh, watch cool. this guy. Yeah. I understand his filmography. Um, and this movie, uh, like, you know, I, again, like, like the first two thirds, but like the last third soured it so much that I was like, ah, fuck that movie. Like, I'm super not interested in seeing that again. <laughs> but the soundtrack stuck with me. It's been yeah. like sort of a, a reliably in my rotation. I listen to a lot of um, orchestral music. Uh, when I write, I like to, yeah. I don't like to be in silence, but I can't, lyrics really jive with my ability to write words. So I listen to, um, a lot of film soundtracks, a lot of like explosions in the sky, like, you know, just stuff that is yeah. cigar roast, like stuff that is largely instru- instrumental and just sunshine has always been like heavy in that rotation. I like, I literally pivoted to interstellar when sunshine went off of Spotify. Oh, wow, I that's need funny. my space yeah. music. <laughs> Um, yeah. I really, really, really like Interstellar's soundtrack uh, as great. well. Yeah. Um, but part of the reason I uh, I really uh, love what Sunshine does, the soundtrack is like so few mo- lots of movies. Every movie has most movies have music, but sure, sure. Uh, few movies are able to imbue character into the mu- the music, or few movies are just interested in mu- the music being its own character. Often it is just meant to amplify or be mm-hmm. texture to a scene or to to heighten um, the emotions, and so it's just kind of like. Uh, painting as opposed to like being like something singular. Sure. Um, and I think Sunshine, like it's it's music is a character, like especially in the first half of the film, um, it conveys like the sense of like hopeless, uh, endless optimism that I think the movie is trying to uh, portray in terms of like this like last effort of humanity to try and save itself from um, a seemingly impossible problem. And like the music feels hopeful and like you want to like cheer at the screen even when it's like a subdued like slow tracking shot yes. of space like the music just feels like you want to get up and be like fuck yeah like they're gonna do this yes. they're gonna save humanity <laughs> and like i also want to cry a little bit and i'm not sure <laughs> why um it's, and it's just it's, it's beautiful and and expressive and amazing i just it's one of my favorite soundtracks uh of all time like far and away definitely in my top 10 um and it's, I just, especially in a movies that are thrillers or horror films, like soundtracks are just sort of, you mostly get themes, right? Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of very famous horror themes, but not a lot of, fam- you know, they got, and you got, you know, Halloween, like John Carpenter, I, that is, uh, he's he, in his he own. Does, yeah. He does do actual <laughs> soundtracks. And yeah. so I don't, but I, but like when you think of John Carpenter, you think of the Halloween theme and, and other things like that. But the horror generally doesn't play with music as character. And so I'm always, and just movies largely don't. And so I'm always impressed when a movie makes music um, uh, just a character in its own right. And even like Interstellar, like I like the music, but it often rely over, or rather like Christopher Nolan's, uh, the soundtracks he puts in the movies, which is always with the same uh, composer whose name I am unfortunately blanking on. But like, it's often like very like, we're going to swell. Like that's the, yes. like, the, the, the character is the swelling of the music or the... Um, so I'm unfortunately for the music nerds out there, I'm, I'm probably selling a lot of this all really short. Uh, that's just my baseline interpretation, but yes, I just wanted to make sure. Oh, I'm... it's Hans Zimmer. Yeah. 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 Yes. Okay. Hans Zimmer. Perfect. Um, yeah. Sunshine's soundtrack is really good. It's um, incredible. I love it. So I want to yeah. make sure and shout that out before we, before we get out of here. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And that does also sell that kind of idea that I keep thinking of this as like a very prestige version uh, of a type of movie that does not always always or often get a sort of prestige treatment. Like this type mm-hmm. of sci-fi thriller, especially if you deal in any way with a derelict ship from outer space, does tend to be a little more space truckers or, you know, something fucked up on that on that spaceship. And instead this is a very it's very big. It's very 
uh, you know, again, the orchestral swelling really does sell that, that sense of prestige and that sense of uh, a very different mood here, very, very different tone. Uh, so my, my final thought on Sunshine is that unlike Battlestar Galactica, which also has a, the ending of that actually soured me to the point where I don't think I could ever watch it again, maybe one day, maybe one day, give it like 10 years and maybe I'll be able to go back. Uh, but I, I think it is so strong in the things that it does well that it uh, does not completely sour me on the movie. I do think this is a movie worth watching, worth rewatching, worth kind of chewing over, even if it does fall on its face uh, to a pretty, <laughs> pretty uh, uh, large degree in that final third. It is still very beautifully made, uh, very artfully crafted, uh, and has a lot of really wonderful things in it. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful failure. Um, yes, <laughs> and one that is like absolutely. Uh, worth worth your time um you know yeah. however it you know uh it plays out in the last third it is it is there are failures worth watching and this yes. is 100 percent one of them yeah agreed agreed i'm very very happy again i will shout out the faculty of horror podcast uh which inspired me to watch the last two movies they're not you know directly uh the the thing that made me watch them in the first place but it is something that made me rewatch them a little bit just because they're a great podcast just a shout out to them uh, and thank you so much, friends. Uh, we're going to say our thanks to Two Mellow for our theme music. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. And you can follow Two Mellow at MellowMakes on Twitter. And you can keep up with the rest of us at waypoint.vice.com. Of course, we're on Twitter at Waypoint. We're on Facebook at Waypoint Vice. We're on YouTube at Waypoint Vice. Uh, and if you enjoy this or any other episodes of Waypoint's many fine podcasts, please rate and review podcasts on the iTunes store or wherever you listen because it really does help. Thank you so much, friends. This has been Be Good and Rewatch It. Uh, Patrick, where can people find you online if they want to hear more of your rewatching thoughts? Uh, at Patrick Club. Amazing. You can find me at Danielle R.I. And I leave you with this. Don't stare too long into the sun. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.